Our scripture morning this reading is Daniel 2, 36 through 49. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is God's word. Here's the big picture. In 1446 BC, God rescued Israel from bondage in Egypt and led his people to the promised land. After 400 years, God gave them a king by the name of Saul. David, then Solomon, followed Saul and led a united kingdom that lasted 120 years. When Solomon died, his son's bad judgment split the kingdom in two. The northern kingdom, called Israel, moved steadily away from God and reaped judgment in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, called Judah, had some good kings along with some bad, but the general trend was away from God. The southern kingdom was judged in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, utterly destroyed Jerusalem and took a remnant into exile. Our first glimpse of Daniel is in 605 BC, almost 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Daniel was taken to Babylon where God used him in amazing ways for almost 70 years. The book that bears his name tells us about how he stayed true to God in a hostile world. And it gives us a glimpse of spiritual challenges we will face in the future. We can learn from Daniel's example and Daniel's prophecy 
how to stay true to God no matter what. Daniel says, and this is not just relevant to the time that he lived. It was not just relevant to those who would occupy the space in those different periods of time. But he's also talking about our day. And he says, those, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel chapter 2 tells us some of the things that prevailing saints know about God's character. They know God has a plan. God knows what transcends human wisdom. They know that God reveals mysteries. They know that history is headed where God intends. And they also know that God's plan rocks. In fact, they know that the rock is his plan, as we're going to see this morning. So let's do a little quick review, all right? In year two of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a nightmare. And not one Babylonian wise guy could convincingly interpret it. So Nebuchadnezzar did what any reasonable king would do. He threatened his staff with death if they did not tell him the dream and what it meant. Daniel secured time for he and his prayer partners to request compassion from the God of heaven. And God revealed the dream and its meaning to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel, first thing, praised the God of his fathers. Then Daniel came via Arioch to Nebuchadnezzar. And he explained God's motive. God wants to reveal to you the future. And then he perfectly recounted the king's dream. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a large statue. It was composed of four layers, gold, silver, bronze, and then iron, and then iron that was mixed. But then a rock came that was formed without hands, and it hit the toes of the statue. And the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron were all reduced to dust particles and dissipated by the wind. No trace was left whatsoever of the large statue. The stone remained and became a massive mountain. So now Daniel is ready to explain what was this about. And he said, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So he sees this single extraordinary statue that depicts the ages of the empire of man. Now this covers the key stages of human history leading to the return of Christ. And then he said, and Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Now I suspect that may have been a bit of a relief for him because he watched the nightmare and he saw this statue. I don't know if it even looked, you know, he saw, ooh, that kind of looks like me. And basically he sees this stone that crashes into the feet and utterly destroys it. And he's in year two of his reign and he's wondering, you know, what does the future hold? <laughs> Am I in trouble? Daniel says, you have God to thank for your position. You have power, you have strength, you have glory, you have rule. Those are all the words. And all have been given to you by God. God did this. 
Now that lesson is going to need some uh, repeat and some reaffirmation in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We've got two more chapters that are going to tell us about incidents in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And uh, I'm not sure he's totally getting it yet. Now Babylon's heyday was quite short, about 70 years. Why was the head gold? And here I'm going to refer to Herodotus. Herodotus is actually the inventor of this thing called history, where you actually go and report what happened. And uh, Herodotus lived about 90 years after Nebuchadnezzar, and he's very interesting to read. Well, he actually came to Babylon, and he was struck with astonishment by the amount of gold that was used. For example, he recounts that 800 talents, a talent is about 75 or 80 pounds, so we're talking about close to a million ounces of gold was used just for religious objects in Babylon alone. Uh, the India house uh, ascription recounts Nebuchadnezzar's desire to beautify Babylon and the, he says the cell of Merodach must glisten like suns, which makes it sound like gold's a good metal for that. The chapel, which a former king had fabricated and coated with silver, he says needs to be overlaid with gold and he wants to impress his subjects. Of the northern citadel, and here's a quote from Herodotus, it says, that, ho that house I caused to be made for gazings and for the beholding of the multitudes of the people with sculptures I had it filled. The awe of power, the dread of the splendor of sovereignty its sides begird. In other words, gold was a good metal to pick for Babylon because they used it a lot in their architecture because they were attempting to basically, uh, by lavishing everything with gold, to impress you, to inspire you. Think of Babylon as the kingdom that relies on the wow factor. Babylon is so amazing. Who wouldn't want to be part of the Babylon movement? Who wouldn't want to call Babylon home? And so this top of the image, which is really depicting Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, which its heyday lasted about 70 years, is gold for a reason. Daniel 2.39, after you, there will be another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. This is a reference, the first one, the kingdom of silver, uh, is about Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia's supremacy lasted about 200 years. If you read the book of Esther, for example, Xerxes is one of the kings in this Medo-Persian heyday. And interestingly, also from Herodotus, we can learn that they had 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. In the book of Esther, one of the things we get some insight on uh, this empire and on Xerxes is he hosts for all of the dignitaries from these 127 provinces a 180-day banquet where they're going to you know, here's, I don't know, hundreds, thousands. They're going to live large for 180 days. Who here has had a reception or something for 180 days? Not happening. Why silver? Why did he pick that for Medo-Persia? This denotes the power of wealth through trade and tribute. Gold was used, as in Babylon, 
for a kind of a store of wealth. But the transfer of wealth was accomplished through silver. And uh, Herodotus says there are 20 satrapies that were established and all the tribute was paid in silver except for India which paid in gold. So basically Xerxes was getting rich and the other Medo-Persian kings were getting rich because of the tribute that was paid in silver. In fact, in Ezra 4.13, you don't have to look it up, but Artaxerxes is actually cautioned, keep the noose around Israel's neck or they'll stop paying the silver tribute. So if Babylon is about using the wow factor to inspire the allegiance of men, Medo-Persia is about wealth. Their slogan could be, give your allegiance to Medo-Persia if you want to live large and enjoy the good life. You might not be inspired, but you will be satisfied. Greek, Greece, is the bronze phase of this statue. And Greek dominance lasted about 300 years. Bronze denotes the power of arms. Uh, Semeticus was a king of Egypt, and he consulted an oracle. Now, this is a number of years before but uh, the oracle said, vengeance will come from the sea when brazen men appear. And so when the Carians and the Ionians, which are from Greece, landed in Egypt, they were equipped with brazen armor. Here's actually a quote from a historian. Brazen men had come from the sea and were plundering the plain. Uh, Liddell Scott, which is a, a dictionary of uh, Greek language, uh, not just biblical Greek, not Koine, but classical Greek. He has actually five columns of compound words with brass. In other words, there was brass this and brass that and brass that. Uh, standard issue, as I understand it, for Alexander the Great's army was a bronze helmet and for many of them, some bronze body armor. The Greek army that was fielded by Alexander the Great was unstoppable. They were able to conquer everything. In fact, it's a, it deserves a sermon on its own, so I won't have you turn there. But Ezekiel 26 is fascinating for what it says about Tyre and Sidon. And as it played out in history, their opposition to Alexander the Great. Alexander flattened the city, threw it into the ocean to create a causeway to get to the remnant of the city. In other words, they were winning. Bronze is a good metal to depict an empire that's maintained by force of arms. So their motto would be win. Whatever it takes, win. In fact, it's said that Alexander the Great actually got depressed when he had conquered India and there was nothing left to conquer and he died young. I don't know if that's true or not. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. The fourth empire is Rome. Now Rome, in its iron iteration, lasted about 500 years. Of the different metals in this statue, iron has the lowest value but the highest strength. And the descriptions of this iron empire are that it's strong, it crushes, it shatters, it breaks. Uh, Trajan, who was the uh, Roman Empire, emperor from 98 to 117 AD, represents the apex of expansion of the Roman Empire. 
Rome, unlike Greece, was not just interested in winning, but in actually crushing all opposition. A good example is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They didn't just defeat them, they destroyed the city. So each of these metals actually is telling us about how to build an empire. Gold, that's the wow factor. Silver, wealth. The bronze is win, and I'm gonna use the word for iron, whack. So how do you wanna build your empire? Nebuchadnezzar would say, use spectacle to inspire people to follow you. Xerxes would say, use money to purchase allegiance. Throw a 180-day party. Alexander the Great would say, use strength to prevail over the competition. And Rome would say, use domination to crush men's will to resist. Daniel 2.41, and in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. A final iteration of the Roman Empire will be one that is an iron ceramic mix. You could say iron in China if you want to. It's going to be divided, but it is still going to be strong. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now this is fired clay, uh, which is why I'm saying china or ceramic. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now he uses the word they there, which is a third, it's a verb with a third person plural, being used of the toes. It's calling the, the toes they. Uh, now the toes, I don't know if, each toe is a blend of iron and ceramic, or if some of the toes are ceramic and some are iron. But the iron denotes the dominator, the whack group. And the pottery represents the Brit, the brittles, the Brits. So there's gonna be some sort of mixing that brings these two groups of people together. But the, the dominators and the Brits are not gonna be truly blended. Uh, think of this as perhaps a superficial oneness. And in the days of those kings, notice those kings, hmm, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. He says those kings, which suggests that the iron and the clay toes are actually rulers because he's saying in the day, he's just talked about these 10 toes and he says in the day of those kings, that's when the stone is gonna come. So it suggests that the iron and clay toes are empires or kings or kingdoms. The only other previously referenced king was Nebuchadnezzar. So there's no king that's an antecedent that would fit with that. The fifth kingdom will not in any way be an extension of the previous four. By the fifth kingdom, I mean the stone that's coming. Uh, the iron is the fourth kingdom, but it has kind of two parts to it, the all iron phase and the iron and ceramic phase. 
This stone that comes will put a decisive end to the entire span of the kingdoms of men. This kingdom will have a defined starting point established by God. It's, quote, set up. But unlike the previous four, these empires of man, it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. He uses, this says, in the future, is actually literally after this, meaning after the four kingdoms, this is what is going to happen. Now, the stone, not created by human hands, is unlike gold, silver, bronze, iron, or clay. All of those are things that are formed by human hands. Now, I realize in a post-industrial age, we use machines to do a lot of this, but prior to that, it was all done by human labor. Uh, one of the things Rochelle and I did uh, a while back is we went to uh, Joshua Tree um, in California and we went to this location where there was a man who lived 100 years ago, homesteaded, and you could actually see the ways in which he was trying to refine gold and it was all being done by hand until they got some kind of steam thing that would crush the rock. It's something that men make by finding the right material and then finding the gold particles or the silver. Now bronze has to be made by putting together copper and tin, uh, clay which you find and then you fashion it into something and you fire it. All of those are created by man hands. But this mountain, interestingly, this stone, is not man-handed. Uh, it, it comes from a mountain, that's in 245, and it becomes a mountain. But it is a stone that is not a product of something men produce. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, all are. So it's fundamentally different. And it becomes a mountain. What, what, is, what's, what does that mean? The word for mountain, now I realize that uh, in this section in Daniel, we're dealing with Aramaic, which was the lingua franca of the time. So I don't have a lot of places where I can go for this without resorting to the Hebrew equivalent. But here is one. This is Isaiah 11:9. He says, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And there he's using mountain to refer to kingdom. In this passage, the word mountain is a future earthly kingdom that is full of the knowledge of God. And so when we look at this stone that is going to become a mountain, it is a stone that is going to become a kingdom. Now, so far, you might be asking yourself, Okay, Jim, you're telling us that this statue shows us the span of all human history. So has all of this happened or is some of it yet future? Great question. My understanding, and I'm going to explain why, is that we have seen in history phases 1, 2, 3, and 4A, but 4B has not happened yet, and I'm going to explain why, all right? First off... The stone replaces the kingdom of men suddenly. 
all at the same time, not gradually. The stone comes and the kingdom is set up. So it's something that happens in a decisive moment in history. Uh, in his first advent, Jesus did not crush the Roman Empire. There was no crushing of the iron of the statue in his first advent. Uh, also during Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire did not have 10 kings or 10 toes all at once. Uh, the last thing I would say is that the stone, which is Messiah and his coming kingdom, is going to crush and end all the kingdoms of the world. The church has not been given a crushing assignment. In fact, if you look at Acts 1.6 and 1.8, in 1.6 the disciples are basically asking, so are you going to crush everybody now? And he says, you're asking the wrong question. What you need to be focused on is a witnessing assignment. And toward that end, I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about that. Worry about using well the time that you have to witness for me. So my conclusion is the same as Warren Wearsby. Here's his quote, okay? Here's what he's saying as he looks at this. The world will be delivered from evil, not by a process, but by a crisis, the promised return of Jesus Christ. Whatever remains of the four Gentile kingdoms passed from one kingdom to the next will be destroyed and turned into chaff. Then Christ will establish his kingdom which will fill all the earth. In other words, the stone has not fallen yet, but it is coming. And when it comes, the empire of man will end and the kingdom of heaven will be established here on earth. So what are some key takeaways from this image and what we're seeing? And granted, what you're seeing so far is really just the template the subsequent visions of Daniel are going to add details or zoom in for a closer look at certain parts of this overview of four empires of man. One, we've already done half, the latter half yet to come, and then the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So here are several things we can say, which would be God is not going to repair manware. He's going to replace it. I encountered this as, you know, there was a time when we would buy a vehicle and if it needed something, you'd pull apart the distributor and deal with the rotor and fix it. But as things became more electronic, then I would go to the dealer and he would say, well, repair is by replacement. You know, you need the, a new electronic module or whatever. So it is with the empire of man. Jesus is not going to tweak it and fix it. It is fundamentally flawed. God's not going to repair the empire of man. He is going to replace it. And that's what this rock is showing us. Um, his initiative, Jesus' initiative in establishing this kingdom will conclude phase 4B. In other words, the iron and clay or the iron and china piece of this iteration of human empire is going to come to an end when the stone comes. This will be earthly. It will be physical and it will endure. It will appear suddenly and decisively and be established by God. The kingdom will be global. This four kingdoms with four be yet to come and then the one 
is our template that we're working from. If you want to understand what is going on in human history, there it is. So the king responds in verses 46 through 49. And there's a lot that's good in his response. He, he fell on his face. He did homage. He gave offerings. He gave presents. He actually said, your God is amazing. Now, he didn't say, your God is God alone. But he at least got as far as saying, your God is amazing. The God is God alone is yet to come in his spiritual pilgrimage. He gives a promotion for Daniel and his friends. This is progress, but we're not there yet. All right, Jim, so what do I do with all this? How do I, how do I apply this chapter? Because it, it, it seems like you know, kind of a history lesson type of thing, and I'm just kind of reeling from this picture. All right, I've got four applications for you, four ways that this has profound impact on us today. First one is God is our difference maker. Think about how this story started. <laughs> Daniel and his three friends are facing imminent death. You know, they get word from Arioch, hey, I've come here, I've been commissioned to kill you. Things look pretty tragic. Four men about to be sacrificed for a king's ego. But God has a way of giving very different endings to situations that we think impossible. Well, it looked like a dead end, literally. And I couldn't resist its dad humor. What well, looked like a dead end, literally, became the means of their promotion. So what is your dead end? What is your impossible situation? For Daniel and his prayer group, impossible meant prayable. And they prayed. And this actually became the means by which God put them in an incredible position to have influence on people around them. What's the hard thing, the impossible thing that you're facing? God is capable of using that to accomplish something profound. Some of that may be inside of you, changes he wants to work in you, in me. But some of it may have to do with people that he wants to affect around you. That's who our God is. That's who the God of Daniel is. Second application Serving God is our non-negotiable. Now, I find this one, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this one, okay? Does Nebuchadnezzar believe in God the way Daniel and his three friends do? No, he does not. I mean, he's had a positive experience here, hasn't he? God, through Daniel, has revealed the dream and told him what the meaning of the dream is. And he says, wow, your God's amazing. I'm going to put a plaque for him, right up here with the plaque to all the other gods. Well, we don't see him saying, your God is God alone. That is coming, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, in the very next chapter, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar goes, man, I love that statue idea. I'm going to make one, and I'm going to make it all gold because I'm the gold guy. And whenever the band plays, I want everybody to fall down and worship that God. 
Now, what if you had been asked, hey, I'd like you to go to work for that guy. I want you to be a part of his administration. I want you to be a part of his cabinet or whatever they called satrapy leaders. Would you? Here's what's so fascinating to me. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to promote you to be my number one guy for the capital district. And he says, I'd like my three friends to join me. Yes, you may make them a part of your cabinet, your administration. Now, what's fascinating is, as you will see in the next chapter, there is a hard line in the sand. When it comes to worship Nebuchadnezzar as if he is God, their answer is going to be no, God alone, no compromise. But that doesn't keep them from serving in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. They are committed, this is kind of my core takeaway, they are committed to representing God well in a workplace where he is not known. No fudging on their convictions, but no pulling back from a place where those convictions are not shared. I am reasonably confident that many of you are working in places where your convictions are not shared. Daniel was God's man. His three friends were God's men to represent him well in a place where he is not known. And that hasn't changed. Third thing that I find so fascinating is what love does. The empires of men use wow, wealth, win, and whack to secure our allegiance. And it kind of feels like we're in the whack zone currently, doesn't it? I mean, we are being compelled to do things. But the kingdom of the rock is driven by something wholly different. Listen to what James says. This is James 2. I don't think it's on the screen for you, but I'll read it to you. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? The kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of the rock who is Jesus, belongs to those who love him. He hasn't dazzled me or bought me or won against me or whacked me. He's gone to the cross for me. And I am madly in love with a Savior. And there is nothing I won't do for him. That's my king. That's my kingdom. That's the one for whom I live. And then this last one. Uh, the armor that is described in Ephesians 6, if we were to spend some time with that, one of the components of our armor is not bronze, it's a hope helmet. Basically, uh, and if we were to unpack that, what you would understand is that one of the things that helps us to effectively defy the enemy who wants us to get fully invested in the world of wow and win and whack and wealth 
is to not see the big picture. Hear me clearly. Jesus is coming. He will put things to right. He will establish a kingdom that fills this world. And we are children of that kingdom. And I don't care what the enemy does. He cannot take that away from us. Jesus is coming. He will establish his kingdom. And I'm not even going to wait here on the planet. We're going to go meet him in the air. We're so excited. And we will be with him forever and we will be a part of what he is doing both here on earth and throughout the heavens. That's how our story ends. One of the things I think Satan likes to do and this certainly is something that I have dealt with. I'm confident you have. Um, I've talked with different people even this week where it is clear to me that this is happening. The enemy likes to use the voice of recrimination. Jim, who are you to think? Have you ever heard that voice? Who are you to possibly think you could do something good for this person or for these people or for whatever? And in that moment, I say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be quiet because my hope is fixed on this truth that Jesus loves me died for me and I love him and we will be together in his forever kingdom and that is fact in the name of Jesus that is our hope that is what sustains us some of you have been handed hard things Jesus uses those hard things to help us become more what we need to be so that when he returns and we look in his face, he says, perfect, lacking in nothing. That's where we're going. That's where he's taking us. Well, then I have one last one, one practical application. Do you have your new birth certificate? Let me explain. So the last church I was at, we had someone who was a worship leader who had, uh, prior to my being there, had come from Great Britain. And he was having a terrible time getting the necessary documentation. It was taking years to do these different things. Now, he hasn't yet, but I'm hopeful that at some point he's able to get his citizenship papers for the U.S. It doesn't work that way with the kingdom of God. You and I all have birth certificates. I have one. It shows uh, a long time ago in Tacoma, Washington, that I was born. It lists the date. lists my mom and dad. That birth certificate says, son of man, because you can trace that all the way back to Adam. The only ones who will be in the kingdom have a new birth certificate, which says, son of the second Adam. And the only way you get that is by being born again. Listen to what Jesus said to Nicodemus when he's having that conversation about being born again. Jesus is saying, you don't get into this kingdom, the coming kingdom, without a new birth certificate. In John 3, 5, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If you have named Jesus as your Lord and Savior and have been born again by his spirit, you already have the citizenship document you need for his kingdom. But I am under no delusions that everyone in this room has that certificate. How do I, how do I get one? I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of this kingdom that is going nowhere. I want to be a part of the kingdom that will be everything. How can I get a new birth certificate? By being born again. Well, how do I do that? You name Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior, your King. And you invite him to be your Savior for his spirit to dwell in you and you live for the rest of your days on this planet as an ambassador of the kingdom. Your citizenship isn't here. My citizenship is there. And that's how we live. Well, I'm going to pray, but I want to give an opportunity for anyone who doesn't have one of those new birth certificates to pray a prayer along with me and then I'll pray for all of us. Let's pray. If you do not know, if you are unsure whether you have been born again, it is as simple as praying a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from you. But your son Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins and I am claiming him in this moment as my savior. I am inviting your spirit to fill me as a child of the king for whom I choose to live for the rest of my days. For everyone else in this room, Father, I am praying that they would know with absolute sureness that our hope is not in the stuff of this world. It's all just stuff. It's all man stuff. Our devotion is to your son who is our king and to his kingdom and we want to, with your help, live all out, all in for the cause of Christ. We want to seek first the kingdom and not worry about the stuff, knowing that you'll take care of the stuff. Make of us a people who are a force to be reckoned with because we live for Jesus alone and our children of the kingdom in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.